Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. When I look back, you know, we were after the modelling. We've been after vaccination data, you know, how much supply you've got. All of those questions which are having real life impact now and um, none of that information being provided, you know. It's only going to be provided for a select few and the rest of you don't have access to it. And I don't think that makes a good response. It allows you to become a bit complacent and secretive and that doesn't necessarily deliver good public policy outcomes. Hello and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host, and I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me this week from her home in Canberra is Katie Gallagher, who has had, it must be said, one hell of a week. Katie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Catherine. Yes, it's been it's been a big one. I've sort of lost track of where we're at, you know, what day we're at, really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what hour of the day. Yes, what day. Exactly. Uh, look, if you haven't caught up with the news, I'm sure many of you have listening, uh, Katie's daughter, Evie, uh, was diagnosed with coronavirus uh, this week, which is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing to happen. Um and rather than racing ahead, I'll just ask the the well-being question first, Katie. How is Evie? Um, she's she's doing okay. Um, she's day five now, so really from when symptoms started. So I'm hoping we're through the worst of it, but I think that's part of the worry for many parents is you don't really know what you're dealing with um, and how it will affect uh, Evie in this case over a longer period, like the first 14 days, for example. So, uh, you know, she's, it's like, a, it's been like quite like any virus, a bad virus, you know, so it's knocked her out. She's very tired. She's got a lot of the symptoms, lost her appetite. Um, but she's been a trooper as well. You know, for a 14-year-old girl, they are known mm. to be quite dramatic. And <laughs> yes. Evie is quite a dramatic, dramatic 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. So, I've been really proud of her because I think it has been terribly scary for her on top of being sick. Yeah, well, that's uh, managing the anxiety would Mm. be as full on from a parental perspective as managing the symptoms. But a lot of people who um, haven't had a COVID case in their household will be just wondering basic things like, how do you look after her? Yeah, so I've sort of learnt on the run. I really feel like it would be useful and I, I might document it to really talk through how you actually make it work because there wasn't any kind of real advice for me other than pulling together a whole range of info from different people. But it's quite a logistical exercise and it's actually quite busy and 
my hospital in the home. So we've got Mm. Evie as much as we can quarantined in her room, my son quarantined as much as we can in his room, Um, and I'm doing most, in fact, all of the entry into her room, uh, but I'm doing it in full PPE and um, taking a lot of care about how we deal with that and get rid of our PPE and things like that. And that's really, I'm immunised, so I, I actually do feel quite protected, but my son isn't. Um, you know, he's a, a mm. year or so ahead of Evie at school, um, so he's sort of a bit like a sitting duck in a in a bit of a Petri dish at the moment. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to keep him clear of it. I'm not sure we'll achieve it, but we're doing our best. Mm. Yeah, and it's sort of that sitting duck thing, you know, like I'm not sure you, you did a bit of media earlier in the week when uh, when Evie was first, when Evie was first known to be a positive case. And uh, I'm not sure when you did the initial batch of media that you would become every parent in Australia <laughs> at that point. No, I mean, I think every, we all feel it. We all mm. feel it. Um, we've all, anyone with little kids, teenage kids, you know, this is becoming, as I think Joe Biden said originally, a pandemic of the unvaccinated yeah. and and our kids are not vaccinated uh, at this point and at least in the ACT outbreak are overrepresented in terms of the stats on around infections. So I imagine a lot of parents listening to the show this week will know exactly the anxiety that you're expressing because they'll be feeling it themselves with their kids who, you know, that, that even even in lockdown are literally sitting ducks in your household. You know, you've got a, a kids literally, mm. you know, sort of next to one another who, yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm just, uh, yeah, well, I'm just, you know, look, obviously I completely understand the anxiety. I share it and I think it'll be, it's useful to have mm. you on and talking about this because a lot of parents will share the same anxiety. Like, so full PPE, like, where do you get that from? Do they deliver it to you or or what happens? Well, thankfully, I've got a really great chemist. So she was able to do a delivery kind of day one. Um, I just rang her and said, I need all these things. And I think the hospital and the health system is getting better about putting together support packages for people now. Um, but it wasn't there on day one, which was a bit of a worry, I think, particularly when I'm really focused on keeping my son um, as much as I can, hopefully negative. And so, yeah, it's required a fair bit of coordination. And I former health minister here, you know, I know how mm. the system works. I know, I know a lot. So I feel like it's been easier for me than it would be perhaps for many parents. Um, I mean, I was quite emotional about it, which I normally aren't. And so it was a mix of anger and sort of mama bear kind of reaction to what was happening Mm. and that sort of played out a bit publicly, which is more than I usually give of myself. But it was a very raw kind of response to what I was watching play out in my house and what I've watched in the committee um, at a kind of at a distant level and just looking at these kids and thinking how could we be in a position where and it's not just about my children. My children aren't special, you know, they're the same as every other child in the country and we're like any other family. But how could we be at this point when this is the result, where we've just got so many kids, teenagers getting it and they're completely unprotected? They're, and as a mother, that really hit me hard 
looking at her, particularly the first couple of nights struggling and not being able to comfort her, not being able to hold her, you know, those kind of things that are just so natural to us as parents that had to be turned on its head. And I I just felt this kind of (laughs) really angry response to things that I, I felt probably could have been avoided or, you know, and I'm not saying that no would ever get COVID-19, but that there would be a level of protection that we could offer them um, that doesn't exist at the moment. Mm. And it's basically a, a supply problem. I'm sure exactly. that if we had if we had the available supply, I mean, this is the, the Doherty Institute has already sort of begun that pivot in the strategy by saying, look, we've got to look at peak transmitters and peak transmitters are, are young people, teenagers and young adults. We've got to vaccinate them as soon as possible. But anybody I know who's tried to get <laughs> tried to get a vaccination for their for their teenager, uh, you know, is having all kinds of trouble. I mean, I think it's a bit different in New South Wales because they've brought forward vaccinations mm. for young people, but certainly in Canberra, it's AstraZeneca or bust at the moment. And then it's not like you've got to walk up start with AstraZeneca appointments either. You've got to, you've got to wait. And then it takes a period of time for vaccines to be clinically effective, which all feeds mm. on the anxiety loop that you've that exactly. we're basically sharing yeah. here. We are just, yes, anyway, it's um it's really hard yards. So how have you found the sort of backup and support from local health authorities? Like, you know, what what do they do? Do they do they ring and see if everyone's okay? Like how how does that all play out? Yeah, so uh, look, it's pretty good. Um, I think there's areas where it could be improved, but that's me looking at it with a you know former health minister's lens over it. So I'm probably kind of looking at it in a different way as well. But from a practical sense, so the negative people in your house get a text message each morning. You say whether you've got symptoms or not. I don't know where it goes off to, but it goes off somewhere. And then for Evie, usually a phone call in the afternoon just to check in on her. But what I found more useful, and again, I feel very privileged and lucky, is our GP is actually calling in on telehealth twice a day to do a consult directly with Evie. And I have to say that has been amazing and has really helped with Evie's anxiety, who, Mm. of course, being a 14-year-old girl and all the, you know, information they pick up largely on TikTok, um, yeah. isn't the best place to get your information. So being able to talk to her doctor who she trusts and have her doctor tell her, you know, that she's not going to die tonight, which is one of mm. one of her big fears. And then her other big fear was giving it to us and then having Dave and I die. And, you know, it's always at the extreme end of the debate. There's no mm. in-between. And that has been an absolute lifesaver. Mm which, you know, if you could have that for every person who's COVID positive, um, maybe it's unrealistic, but that has been an absolute godsend. Then we have to get tested at some point. Um, hopefully that'll be done in reach where they'll come to us because, you know, I could actually be positive now. I don't know. Um, yeah. And so we'll go through that. But it looks like a long stay in isolation for, for me, actually, and the others because we have to be clear 14 days after Evie clears the virus. Yes. So it could be up to 28 days or longer that we are 
um, required to isolate at home, which of course is fine. And your son, how's he dealing with the anxiety? I sort of feel obtrusive in a way because <laughs> I, you know, my kids. No, well, my kids are a little bit older than yours, but similar age, and and I don't want to, I, I don't want to actually intrude on their privacy <laughs> in this conversation. It's not fair or reasonable, but obviously he'd be worried about his sister. He'll be worried about getting it himself. So how's mm. how's he travelling? Is he all right? Yeah, and I think that my kids are a bit used to having a nosy mother that talks to everybody about them all the time, but he's um, he's the opposite of his sister in a way. She's more highly strung. He's very laid back, a bit older than her, so, you know, cruising with his headphones on, happy that he's being given unlimited, you know, free gold pass to uh, life on his computer playing games. Uh, feed him carbs sort of every two hours um, mm-hmm. and he's communicating with his sister on Snapchat, which seems, you know, not entirely unusual for the way they conduct <laughs> their sibling <laughs> correspondence. So yes. I feel lucky. I feel I actually I'm, I'm a bit emotional all over the shop about it, but I, I do feel really well supported in a place like Canberra, lots of neighbours dropping things over, people offering to help, you know, pulling together all the kind of care side of things. But I can imagine that a lot of people might not be in my position and how, you know, it is it's still isolating and scary, particularly at, you know, two o'clock at night when you're doing your ward rounds um, and mm. just hoping things are going okay. So, yeah, it's uh, been a week. But. Yeah, been a week. That's mm. where we started and that's where we've landed. So, uh, yeah, God, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, it's just, it's it's really visceral. Mm. I mean, talking about your kids, yeah. thinking about, you know, anyway, we don't need to explain that to one another or to <laughs> anyone listening to us, I don't think. Anyway, um, but I wanted to, I actually invited you on before I realised, obviously, that you were going to have uh, the COVID week from hell. Um <laughs> because I wanted to talk to you about your committee work and also some portfolio issues. So we'll we'll get to that now. Uh, now, I think I was so keen to bust in and find out how Evie was, I didn't <laughs> even properly introduce you at the top of the show. Anyway, <laughs> Katie. Evie will Katie love that. Is... She does. There is a side of her that's <laughs> loving being this stuff. She was pretty impressed with her media coverage earlier in the week. Oh, good. <laughs> and please, because, of course, I haven't even bothered to introduce her mother properly. Anyway, let's do that now. Katie is the Shadow Finance Minister and in terms of the committee work that I flagged a second ago, uh, what I'm talking about is uh, Katie has led the the Senate select inquiry into the government's management of coronavirus and that committee process has basically tracked the trajectory of the virus in real time. You've been calling officials before that committee to account at all stages really of the pandemic for what's been going on. So why don't you just tell the listeners what that experience has been like? Let's just sort of paint a, a broad picture first and there's a, there's a couple of specific questions I want to ask you about it. Yeah, sure. So the um, COVID committee, it was negotiated with the government's support right at the beginning of the pandemic when back in, when was it, 2020, March, April, yeah, late March, early April 2020 when we weren't sure how the pandemic was going to roll out and whether the parliament would sit and there was an acknowledgement that there should be some level of accountability built in to the response particularly if the parliament couldn't sit. And at that point, we didn't think it would sit for for a long period of time. And so the select committee was set up with the government support to basically be the, you know, I guess the structural kind of 
engine of of that accountability mechanism. And so we've had, I don't know, probably more than 50 hearings now. So we have tried, as you said in your introduction, to monitor the government's response as much as we can in real time, acknowledging that when there's been really big, you know, outbreaks and things like that, we've had to allow officials to focus on that and have the hearings later. But we've um, tried to track the whole response from the health and the economic uh, point of view. Mm. I would say we've had more of a focus on the health one probably in the last 12 months because we've been following the kind of vaccination and quarantine side of things and a lot of the economic supports had died down by that point in time. And where issues have arisen, whether it be childcare or aged care or transport workers, aviation, infrastructure, we've been able to try and follow those areas as well because, you know, there's been so much public money just rolling out the door, Mm. um, Mm. more than has ever happened in the past, and we haven't really had the usual scrutiny processes and they've all you know, usually it's all been in a rush and money's got to get out and things have to be put in place. And so we've been trying to, as much as we can, document that really from a historical point of view, but also real time as well and mm. and track it. Uh, so it's been a privilege really to be in that position where I've been able to chair it and work with my colleagues right across the Senate. Well, and that's uh, that was exactly the first question I was going to ask you um, because it's been quite interesting to me that the sort of disposition on that committee has been quite collaborative and also the reports that you've produced have been largely multi-partisan. I mean, there's, there's been different comments here or there. But, uh, for example, uh, one of your reports was highly critical of the government for, you know, basically holding back documents that the committee had sought relating to some of the management of the pandemic. And, you know, the government senators didn't dissent from that. I mean, they had their own comments, is mm. my memory, but they they didn't dissent from it. So it's it's quite interesting. Like, how have you built that sense of... Well, camaraderie might be a stretch, but but that sense of common purpose about the accountability exercise, is that something the committees had to work on actively or is it just everybody understands how significant the moment is and we've all got a role to play and best we play it? I'm just interested how that's all played out behind the scenes. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both, Catherine. I think it's a bit of um, my kind of style as the chair and I've tried to build in collegiality and fairness across the way we conduct the hearings. I like the hearings to be quite respectful, um, you know, and I think people have kind of acknowledged that. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to not allow government senators time to ask questions because all of, most of this has been done remotely as well, remember. So it's been Mm. an unusual, which maybe helps in that regard because, possibly, you know, we're not all in the room. Like in estimates, perhaps it's a more kind of, can be a more, you know, testy environment, but I've usually been the only senator in the room and everyone else is on video and so it does kind of provide a bit more distance. Maybe that's made us all more well-behaved, but also very decent senators, you know, I like all of them. Um, The Deputy Chair James Patterson, great to work with. Perrin Davey, great to work with. Rachel Seawitt, great to work with. And my colleagues, Murray and, and Christina. 
Um, so I, I think that's part of it. The, the people who are on the committee, the approach I've got as chair, and then I think you're right, the, the moment we're in, the seriousness of, of it all and the role that the Senate's given each of us to play in providing that accountability scrutiny and also reporting back to it um, when we think things uh, need to be said. Uh, like Mm. we've done. We've done two reports. We'll have more. Um, One of them was really trying to capture the first year of the pandemic, everything that went on. And the second report was about, well, speaking on behalf of the committee, the frustration with uh, some of the, you know, attempts to not provide the committee with what we think are reasonable requests for information. And do you think the disposition of um, the witnesses has changed over time? Like, I mean, I've watched not every single one of those hearings, but I've watched a number of them uh, because, like you, I'm sort of interested in documenting the history, like the first draft of history about these extraordinary events that we're living in, right? So, and I found the committee process to be very helpful Mm. in putting some of those stories together. But it sort of strikes me just observing at the start, I think uh, people were so, well, a combination of energised, freaked out, but, you know, sort of attentive and and on the job. I thought myself that uh, witnesses were a bit more forthcoming at the start than they have been as the pandemic's gone on. And I mean, I guess there'd be a basic psychology behind that, right? Like Mm. as you as an event unfolds, you have a record, which then you have to defend a bunch of decisions that you make. And, you know, perhaps at the start, there was no record to defend, right? Mm. So everybody had a degree of, uh, well, it just struck me that people were a bit more open than they normally would be at estimates and other places. Am I imagining that or is <laughs> is that sort of broadly fair? No, absolutely. I think that's right. Those first hearings um, really I think from both when we had health and treasury coming, you could tell that this was happening in real time almost. Um, decisions were happening so quickly. If an issue was identified, you you could see from officials that they knew about it, were onto it, might not have all the answers, but, you know, wanted to be able to, or maybe they used the committee as more of a vehicle for reassurance that, you know, they were across things, they were going to be responding, um, you know, they could explain why they'd taken the decisions, like in Treasury's case about why JobKeeper was structured the way it was, mm. you know, you could, um, why the advice to government, you know, about those three initial economic support packages rolled out the way it did, you could see um, certainly genuine engagement. I think it's become more defensive uh, in in the second year of it, uh, and I think that's right. There's a bit of history, there's a bit of uh, lead in the saddlebags, um, mm. and people start using the more traditional ways of kind of protecting evidence, which is, you know, take it on notice, um, don't answer, bat it away, and refer it to the Minister for a Public Interest Immunity Claim. So I think we've been seeing more of that as there's been more criticism about the Commonwealth Government's response. And I would say Mm. that's really focused largely in the health area. Yes. What's been, you know, if you could just sort of identify, this is a bit of an unfair question, but like, what's your biggest insight as a consequence of this work? Like, what, what would you, how would you distill your observation about what you've learned through that evidence, through that incremental rolling evidence, right? Obviously, we're all in a political conversation, so I'm Mm. I'm aware of obviously what Labor's attack lines are against the government, and I'm not suggesting that's 
that's a pantomime. I mean, the attack lines actually reflect the reality. Mm. But, you know, has there, has there been some thunderbolt or some big insight that you've come across as a consequence of this work? Bit of a silly question, yeah. but I'm interested in well, what, what no, the answer might be. I think for me, um, I, I come from a point of view where I, I sort of have some understanding of what being in government's like. It's a, it's a bit of a memory for me. but So I understand that our systems aren't, always perfect and people don't expect them to be perfect. But I also come from a point of view where sharing and providing information is often the best way of ensuring good bureaucratic responses. You know, Mm. it's when you shut down and don't provide information which is in the public interest for whatever reason and the usual one given is commercial incompetence or that old favourite of national cabinet incompetence Mm. which we've never Mm -hmm. accepted is a way of not actually facing up to some of the problems and having that defensive approach rather than an open approach where, you know, you are sharing information, people have access to it and knowledge, and then you're improving as you go. And I think when I look back, you know, we were after the modelling in the early days. What did the health modelling say? We've been after vaccination data. We've been after, you know, how much supply you've got. All of those questions which are having real-life impact now and, um, you know, none of that information being provided. You know, it's only going to be provided for a select few and the rest of you don't have access to it. And I don't think that makes a good response. I think it doesn't hold, you know, your feet to the fire. It, it, it allows you to become a bit complacent uh, and secretive mm. and that doesn't necessarily deliver good public policy outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just do the portfolio now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're covering a hell of a lot of ground here, but let's just um, let's set down there for a tick. So a big decision uh, in the economic portfolios, yours and Jim Chalmers in Labor in recent times has been the decision uh, by Labor to end your opposition to the stage three tax cuts. That decision was announced a few weeks ago. Now, Katie, what would you say to people like me who think this is bad policy? Well, I'd say it's one that we've consulted on heavily. Um, we've, we've taken our time. We always said when it passed the Senate that we would go through a process around that and consult, uh, discuss, and then make our own uh, decision. You know, it, it passed the Senate. It's legislated. Um, it's written into the forwards. And, you know, we've taken the decision to to not, well, what's the, the language for it? Not to, to not go to the election to repeal it with a, with a position mm. of repealing it. Um, and um, I think, you know, that reflects the shadow cabinet's discussion. It reflects our deliberations more broadly with st- stakeholders, but it also means, you know, we want to focus on other areas in the election campaign. You know, we want to, we want to be focusing on matters that we want to be talking about. And uh, just picking up that last point, mm. was the concern that um, certainly the experience in 2019 was that a number of issues were weaponised against Labor during that campaign, climate change being an obvious one, and and there was also tax. Tax was, um, franking credits was sort of presented to a lot of voters as a death tax, for example. Was it Was it a political decision or a or a policy decision? I mean, it's hard to separate the two, isn't it? I mean, there's certainly, um, you know, policy and politics in there. Um, We want to win 
the next election. We want to be very focused on that. We want to go to the Australian people with a clear agenda about what that looks like and what a Labor government will do. And I think, you know, from my point of view, from where I sit, we're setting out the framework for that to happen. We've made a decision around tax and now we work with the budget and the priorities that we have, and we go forward with that agenda. Look, and it's not easy. You know, these decisions are never easy. I, you know, and they're never made. You know, over one conversation, it's a lot of thought goes into them. And partly the fact that they've passed the Senate um, was, you know, a key consideration there. Mm. They are legislated tax cuts. Um, we want to focus on on other areas in the recovery from COVID-19. What do you think, uh, again, and this is sort of most pertinent for a finance minister or a shadow finance minister, because, you know, a lot of your task is sort of being doctor no with the colleagues, right? People come with sort of vast amounts of expenditure with great ideas and finance traditionally is doctor no. Finance mm. is where, where are your offsets or, or, you know, how are we going to basically reconcile this expenditure with the budget bottom line. Is, is that argument, which has sort of been a real straitjacket for Labor for several campaigns, right, um, is that over? Is that sort of like my budget bottom line is better than your budget bottom line? Is that gone, do you think? Or is that still a consideration that Labor has to take into account in developing your election platform? I don't think the next election is going to be fought in that old or older language from the Abbott years forward about death and deficit disaster because mm-hmm. I, I can't see how that can happen. I mean, this government has got, dot, you know, its budget papers have deficits for 40 years, debt for at least that long, um, trillion dollars in debt. So, you know, I don't know how anyone can go into a campaign when we've got the set of numbers like we've got and say, you know, my budget is better than your budget, but I still feel that the Australian people expect responsible budgeting. Um, you know, it's it's their money, it's public money that's raised to allocate across a whole range of areas and they want to be assured that, you know, the decisions taken are mindful of the importance and value of every public dollar. And so I think there's still very much a, a discussion that has to be had about responsible budgeting uh, within the numbers that we have, but I hope that some of that kind of crazy all debt is evil and all deficits are bad, you know, might be a bit quieter in the election shouting that goes on because I honestly can't see how the government can get away with running that kind of campaign again. But but nonetheless, though, and this is why I started with the stage three tax cuts, um, although the options that you were looking at prior to the decision wouldn't have raised masses of revenue, which is sort of one of the reasons why the discussion landed where it did. But um, obviously, if you if you support the stage three tax cuts, that does constrain your own expenditures. Do you accept that, or do you or do you think not so much in an environment where debt and deficit disaster isn't as front and centre as it might be in an ordinary election season? Well, I think um, we know the numbers. At, well, unless if we go, we've got the latest budget numbers, and uh, we'll get my EFO at the end of this year. So we have a pretty good indication of what a, the budget forwards look like. Um, and that brings in in a year of those tax cuts, stage three coming in. So 
we've got that as part of our thinking and, you know, I, I guess I'll just repeat what I said before. We know that we have to be responsible about the allocation of funds within that. So you're not going to see us just chucking money left, right and centre and saying it doesn't matter anymore. It does matter. Um, we want to be careful. We want to be thoughtful about and we want to have our priorities and we want to make sure that every dollar spent actually delivers a particular outcome. We don't want to just be, you know, you that's what you'll see from Jim and I. You won't see, you know, just throwing money around and hoping that people like it. Uh, we want to be able to have policies like our childcare policy, like our, um, you know, rewiring the nation policy, things where we can actually demonstrate that we are using the budget for this purpose. And at the end of the day, this is the outcome we expect to see, whether it be you're getting better support to access childcare or we're making the energy grid uh, stronger and more resilient uh, about delivering energy to households. So I think everything has to have an outcome for us. That's the discussion Jim and I have had. Uh, we acknowledge we will need to spend money. Uh, but we really want to make sure that where we are spending it, it's actually going into the things that we need to invest in, in the recovery out of the pandemic. And, you know, our policies are going to be very much guided by that. And what about offsets? Like, will, will major spending, I mean, a lot of the spending that the government's, oh, sorry, that Labor has foreshadowed thus far, I mean, childcare's not, but like rewiring the nation, a lot of those things are off budget, those those dollars. Now, we, we're yet to see from you guys, you know, a health spend, a higher ed spend, a school spend, um, an NDIS spend. Like there's, there's quite big calls on the budget in all of those areas, right? Are you proposing uh, offsets or, again, like I mean, the government's not offsetting expenditure no. at this point in time, no. right? They've rewritten their fiscal rules. What are Labor's fiscal rules at the moment? I, I guess I've kind of outlined some of them in terms of, of saying, you know, every dollar spent has to deliver an outcome, it has to be careful, it has to be targeted. Uh, we will have more to say around offsets or savings or, you know, reductions in programs where in the lead up to the election where we think that's sensible, that's some of the work that I'm looking at now, you know, I'm going through the budget and if we were lucky enough to form government, I think there's more work that you do on the other side uh, of that, mm -hmm. you know, um, once you're incoming uh, to make sure that you are tightening up the spending that's happening across the budget. I mean, one of the areas I am critical of the government is that they have thrown their fiscal rules out, but some of the, you know, we call it waste or rorts in the budget are, are expensive, you know, and mm. and some of those areas need tightening up and we would be looking at those areas too. Some of the ways they're treating the public service at the moment, you know, the labour hire costs, which are extraordinary and mm. I think fundamentally that comes from the fact that uh, I, I don't know that the Liberals see the public service in the way that I see it as a, you know, a public good and ne needing to be resourced and built in terms of capacity and capability when you're just outsourcing large chunks of it, but often at more expense. So there's all of those areas too where I think mm. we would want to be tightening things up, but there's a lot of work to be done in that area. I just don't accept in a budget of, you know, $500 billion that there isn't savings, sensible savings to be made. And what about taxes? We'll end here. This is sort of, this is where we can, the, the language becomes a bit sort of tortured, right? You're not going to repeal income tax cuts that have been legislated right? Yeah. Um, what about new tax measures though? Like is the lesson from 2019 you can't have revenue measures at all because they might be weaponised against you or is there some sort of a midpoint 
between nothing and something <laughs> that we haven't seen yet. Well, there's certainly, um, you know, work. This is more in Jim's area where he said publicly around multinational tax reform where he would be looking for opportunities there. So I don't think it's a, a nothing or everything, but I think it's particularly looking in in targeted areas and the one we would be looking at mostly would be in that area, in multinationals, mm. yeah. All right. So it sounds between nothing. <laughs> it sort of says between nothing and something, there's something, yeah, there is yeah, something. Yeah, I think from the my point of view, point yeah, my point of view and my my portfolio, it's looking at the budget, looking at making sure we're tightening up some of the spending going on there where it's sensible to do so, so that we can reallocate to pri- other priorities, which uh, you've listed them. There's plenty of them that mm. need to be resourced. And I guess I come from a view that a budget is there to serve a particular purpose, to deliver outcomes to the community. And we need to make sure that those decisions are right and they're doing what the community asks us to do as as leaders and allocate those funds fairly and and responsibly. Mm -hmm. Let's end there. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. We better let you get back to the patient. Hope she's okay. Um, Thank you to Alice. I've had one ear on her. (laughs) Oh yes, I was going to say, is she right? God, I've sort of. I've got this kind of. I've got my own mother background track on this entire (laughs) conversation. Anyway, sorry. Um, Thank you to Alison Chan, who's producing uh, this episode for us. Thanks to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of the show. Parliament's back, but not with you, Katie. Or, Or are you? Are you going to be virtual or no? Oh, I might be. I just see how the little one goes. Um, but yeah, there's an able team in Canberra ready and willing to, you know, yes. get going. Step up. You step yes. up next week. Christina Cadilly's about to burst out of quarantine, isn't I she? Know. I know. So. And a few others too. But <laughs> and yeah. a few others. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Parliament's sitting next week. We'll be back then. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.